It's been way too long, and I really miss you. Love you, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Top fives and deep dives with Tad and PTM. Top fives and deep dives with Tad and PTM. Top fives and deep dives with Tad and PTM. Top fives and deep dives with Tad and PTM. My favorite director would have to be Martin Scorsese. Followed by Hey guys, welcome to Top Fives and Deep Dives. This is Justin. I'm over in LA. We've got uh, Mike over in London. Hello, sir. How you doing? Yo, yo, yo. What's up? Nothing. Nothing. It's uh, it's time to do the inverse of our episode the other week, is it? You know, we opened a door over there and now we're closing it off here. I, I cannot wait. And that, of, of course, top five movie endings. The impression that it leaves on us forever. It's a very important yeah. part of the movie. Again, lots of good ones. And I think we just want to say up front, you know, we did recently do an episode with twists. Sometimes those occur at the end. So basically everything from that episode is off limits. This is purely endings. Yeah, this is exactly. We're not going to use anything from the twist episode. Maybe, you know, if we want, you know, we could shout those out in the honorables if there were any that we loved. But yeah, this is uh, this is everything devoid from that episode so i think we just jump right into it let's fucking go let's go who's going first fuck it i'll go first today boom i'm feeling it and i'll say looking at my list today it's it's very it's very it's very popular movies i i would say i'm really devoid of any true mike picks which is a big surprise for me sometimes the endings those movies are famous for a reason that's right that's exactly right and my number five is definitely one of those. We are going to 2010, a filmmaker that I think somehow we haven't managed to talk about in our first 50 episodes, which doesn't seem possible, but um, that is Darren Aronofsky's film, Black Swan. Ooh, wow. I love Darren Aronofsky, but like we haven't talked about any of his films, really. We have ever. not really talked about Darren Aronofsky at all, and I like him as well. That's just bizarre. It's just bizarre. Slip through the cracks. Missed picks. Yeah, so I think most people know Black Swan because it absolutely cleaned up at the box office. It was a huge movie um, in 2010. Not just because it's a great film, but having Mia Lacunas and Natalie Portman didn't hurt. Let's put it that way. We know how the business works. But um, <laughs> this is, I mean, we all know what it's about, but it's, it's, it's about Natalie Portman. She's like a ballerina, I guess would be the right term. Um, and she's dancing um, in a production of Swan Lake. And, you know, so to, to, to understand the end without spoiling too, too, too much, I guess, you know, over the course of the film, Natalie Portman needs to or is sort of getting in touch with her black swan side while also kind of losing her mind. Um, and it's all leading up to this opening night performance, her debut as in like a sort, sort of starring role as the swan queen in Swan Lake. And at the end... She, after dancing like uh, an amazing performance um, as both White Swan and Black Swan, better than what anyone could have expected, um, while simultaneously kind of losing her mind, we, we see that she's stabbed herself and she falls, uh, which is part of the actual ballet. And we, we see that she's in trouble. Everyone like runs over to help her and stuff. And she just says, it's, it was perfect. 
and then it just kind of fades to white actually i think it is um but the ending is i think it's great for for several reasons i mean one you know it really drives home kind of the theme of the movie um which is you know what people in this profession and others because aronofsky has already called this uh like a companion piece to the wrestler it's a very similar ending actually um you know people in this type of professions what they have to do um to strive to give that perfect performance two i think it's great because it ties back in you know the whole film is kind of presented itself as a retelling of swan lake um in which the white swan dies at the end so it kind of brings that whole thing full circle and three and this may be up to interpretation for me i think that it shows that while she was losing her mind over the course of the film she's somewhat complicit in doing that she was kind of allowing it to happen allowing this darker side to be free because she knew in her mind that she would have to do that in order to give the performance um, of a lifetime so i think it adds kind of that that extra dimension and there's other dimensions in the film that we can't even explore sort of in this time but that is is black swan and that is why i love it dude that is a great pick i actually totally forgot about that ending and and i think that movie is fantastic by the way it's great yeah i watched it again this week just to be sure and i loved it oh dude yeah definitely uh yeah natalie Portman's so great in there too and and I, I yeah i think it's one of aronofsky's finest for sure and and he's great and the wrestler is very similar you know i said it he oh, said it's a companion piece very yep. similar movie very similar um ending so it's really cool it's really interesting to watch those two movies back to back for sure well that is a fantastic number five what do you got let me tell you number five i have 2015's furious seven. Oh my god <laughs> <laughs> wait actually this is a pretty good oh uh, i had to do it i was going through all the endings i love and you know there's there's a bunch there's probably about 20 that i love and this one is is truly, and even as time has gone on, it holds up. And it's just, I mean, no other movie has ever had to navigate an issue like this. So, of course, there's the seventh Fast and the Furious movie. This is the film where Paul Walker, unfortunately, passed away most of the way through filming. And they completed it with his brother stepped in and they used technology to to digitally get his face on them. And it all looks like it's him throughout the film. But the very end of the movie, they finish their mission. And then after that, they're all hanging out at the beach, talking about how Brian, Paul Walker's character in the film, is, you know, he's hanging it up because he's going to go be with Mia and his and his family now. And... Dom Vin Diesel's character decides, you know, he sort of walks away. He's like not ready to say goodbye yet. But of course, it's all mirroring what really happened in real life that Paul, you know, Paul Walker's gone. And so he goes for a drive and he ends up pulling up to a stoplight or a stop sign. And then Paul Walker drives up in the car next to him and he said he says something he sort of like gives him that look from I think even the first one, and then it like flashes through all the Paul Walker moments, just all these Paul Walker moments throughout the series with Vin Diesel doing, you know, a voiceover uh, as the two cars are driving, 
and pretty much saying, I mean, it's, it's like they break the wall and they're just talking about Paul rather than Brian and, you know, saying that, you know, no matter what, he'll always be his brother until they meet again, whatever. And then it's this beautiful shot of the, the car, the car that Paul Walker's driving, breaking off and sort of going into the distance into, you know, the valleys and hills beyond. And it just like fades to white and ends. And it's all with, of course, the Wiz Khalifa song, See You Again. And it fucking makes me cry every time. It's it's un it's just so well done and so not kitschy where it's like so many other times I feel like it would feel tacky to a degree. But this not only feels epic and respectful, but it's just incredibly emotional. And it's 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 beautiful. It really is. I, I think it's one of the most tastefully done things. And it's just it works incredibly well, both as a tribute and in a weird way for the story. And I just I, I think it's as much as, you know, people could laugh about the Fast and the Furious movies. I actually think the, the ending is sort of genius to this one. Yeah. When you first said it, I was like, oh, man, here we go. But then I kind of was thinking back. This is it is a great ending and it is a very difficult thing they had to do. Um, and like you said, I mean, you know, when it goes right to for Paul after that, it really kind of breaks that barrier between the franchise and the actual person who's so iconic, uh, to the whole franchise, you know, and, and a guy that really everybody loved and, uh, you know, for a franchise that's, let's just say not what they don't really do is deal intact, right? Everything is insane. And that's kind of the way that they go about things to have this kind of quiet, sensitive, uh, moment and send off was, it's definitely a pleasure to see. Rest in peace, Paul. Number four. Absolutely. Rest in peace, Paul Walker. Also, just very quickly, I should just share, uh, especially given like uh, an episode we did recently. I can't remember what year this was, but it was somewhere between the Fast and Furious movies. So, but say between two and four. And I was watching Shark Week and without like, there was no like, oh, this is going to be a special show doing this. It was just like a regular episode. You know, they have like 20 shark shows in a row. And just like one came on and like randomly Paul Walker was there the entire time on a boat, like doing shark shit. Whoa. With no fanfare at all. And he was just loving it. I always think about that for some reason. Just so hilarious. What a legend. What a legend. Well, number four. So this is maybe my most, the closest thing I have to sort of a mic pick, but is like a very well-known movie. Uh, for like cinephiles, I would say. And that is 1975's Nashville, the Robert Altman film. Nice. I do know of it. I haven't seen it. But you can ruin it because that's what we're doing in this. It's endings. Well, luckily, there's no way to actually fully ruin the whole thing. So you're going to be fine. Yeah. Because the film is, well, it takes place in Nashville. And it does, <laughs> I'll just I'll just read this very quickly. So like, you know how like when you go to Wikipedia and you're looking up a movie and it's like, Blah, blah, blah is a 2018 comedy directed by blah, blah. You know what I mean? Yeah. The Wikipedia is that it is a satirical musical ensemble comedy drama film, <laughs> which I don't even think captures all of it, but it, it's doing a lot of different stuff and there's 24 main characters. So wow. it's impossible. It's like the sprawling epic thing and it's impossible for me to fully um, spoil it. But it's all, it's kind of about celebrity and politics and fame and the American dream and sort of the state of 
of where the country was at that time in 75. And basically, it's all leading up to this political rally for this like presidential candidate. And a one of the many musicians uh, featured in the film, who's like pretty famous in Nashville, let's say, for the film, um, gets on stage and is assassinated uh, right there in front of everybody, like at this political rally. And essentially, within minutes, someone else who has no fame whatsoever and is kind of waiting for her big break goes onto the stage, picks up the mic, and just sort of starts singing another song. And immediately, everybody like forgets about the assassination, um, and they all just kind of keep keep moving on. And I will say this is sort of open for interpretation. I have a quote here, um, which is from like a very famous review of the movie, which is Nashville isn't full of resolutions because Altman doesn't set up conflicts, um, which is true. So there's no way to really sort of explain what it means without seeing the film. But for me, one, it kind of shows the sort of power of some of these institutions like politics and say music and celebrity to just kind of enrapture us and get us to completely say not focus on the very serious issues that we're facing and it was we're just desperately in need of like any distraction because like life in america is shitty but two it also just shows how this like machinery of fame keeps on churning and and we sort of saw it very soon after the film with the assassination of, of john lennon i mean there's a very famous person who gets assassinated by a not famous person seeking for their 15 minutes and when they're out of the spotlight right away there's someone else that just gets thrust in and then we just forget about it like nothing ever happened and it's just kind of you know that culture of celebrity just just keeps burning um and there's basically no way to to sort of derail it um which i think would be maybe the less hopeful interpretation but it's a really interesting ending um to a a very complicated film wow i i definitely want to see this one i'm adding it to my list right now nice and everybody should watch this. It's it's a bit long, but it's um it's a really really interesting film. Very nice. So that is number four. Well, my number four is uh another popular. It's another popular movie. I feel like all the movies are going to be between you and me are going to be somewhat popular films. Seems like it. And that would be 1998's The Truman Show. Oh, nice. Okay. So The Truman Show for anyone who's unfamiliar. It stars Jim Carrey. It's also got Laura Linney, Noah Emmerich, Natasha McElhone, and, and of course, Ed Harris. And it's about this man named Truman, Truman Burbank, played by Jim Carrey, who he just lives an ordinary life, but he is actually living on a massive television set. And it's pretty much like the world's like biggest reality TV show and all of his friends and his family and everything, it's all, they're all actors and they switch out in ways and there's cameras everywhere, but they're all very hidden. So he doesn't know. And the entire film is about Truman slowly uncovering what is actually going on. And the ending scene, which is infamous and, and truly one of my favorite endings ever is so Truman, you know, he's he his biggest fear is water. And of course, this has sort of been 
hammered into him because if he were to actually go in a boat too far in the water, he will hit a wall that is this massive dome that he's in. And so he ends up traveling through the water, through a terrible storm, facing his fears, and he finally gets to the wall and he gets to a door that will lead him out of here. And Ed Harris, who's the creator of this whole thing, he sort of got this God complex and it's, that's a whole nother story, but he talks to Truman through, you know, the microphone, which is like playing throughout like the sky, we'll say. And he's telling him sort of why he should stay and, you know, why, this has been done and that in a way trying to convince him to stay everyone in the world essentially is watching the broadcast and Truman's famous line is well if I don't see you good what is it it's uh I don't want to mess it up oh have a good good morning good good afternoon and good night yeah it's like well if I don't see you good morning good afternoon and good night so he thinks for a moment and then he just looks at the sort of the screen and he goes, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, and bows to the audience, so to say, and start. he walks out of the door, and just you see just everyone like watching around the world, like going nuts, and N- Natasha McElhone's character, who's like the girl that he had had feelings for, and always sort of had tr- thought about and tried to find, but she'd been let go is one of the actors you see her getting very excited and anyways it's this big like triumphant moment the music crescendos and then it cuts to black and ends and it's it's just like such an epic ending i think i mean it's of course a lot of people probably wish they could see then what happened to him when once he gets out but that would take away just like i think the beauty of the ending itself and it's incredible it's just it's big, it's epic, and very memorable. Totally agree. I mean, once you sort of realize what's happening to Truman over the course of the film, you know, he just clearly becomes the hero. Um, and you could want nothing more than for him to actually, you know, get to what's basically his freedom. And and yeah, it doesn't doesn't matter where it goes from there, right? I mean, that's it. It's that one big moment. Yeah, he got he's he got the freedom. Love that. Well, my my number three also kind of involves an unlikely hero. And this is 1942's Casablanca. There he is. There he is. There's Mike. Well, this is this is one of the most famous films ever. I know. I just you know you're getting some 1942 there. The there he goes. I agree. We get some 42. And uh, yeah, I mean, I rewatched this last night just to be sure. But I mean, no matter how many times I watch this or how many how much hype it gets, this is one that never never disappoints uh, for me. So, yeah, the film takes place in Casablanca, and it's all about uh, this bar, which is owned by Humphrey Bogart. And Casablanca is like a, it's kind of like the last place uh, where people can get visas to escape. Uh, This is 42, so during during World War II, because it's not safe uh, to travel through Europe, essentially. So there's all kinds of different characters that end up there, and they all go to to Rick's, uh, which is Humphrey Bogart's bar. And there's a lot of awesome stuff uh, that this film does, but you know, it's it's dealing with his relationship with Ingrid Bergman, and kind of the sacrifices that people have to make 
um, during the war, especially in terms of like letting people go um, when the opportunities arise, because you never know when you'll sort of get one again um, to escape because Casablanca is controlled by France and France has, you know, essentially surrendered to Germany. So anything could kind of happen um, on any day. So that leads us to the very end of the film where Rick, who has spent the entire film, you know, being completely neutral on everything, like he says to Nazis, like he's like, I see what you guys are doing. He says to the French guys, I see what you're doing. He says, uh, you know, I never stick my neck out for anybody. Well, finally, at the end of the film, he ascends to be our hero. Um, he sticks his neck out, gets, um, you know, an egg- exit visa for the girl that he loves and her husband. Um, and kind of lets them go when he had the opportunity to go and sort of sacrifices his own freedom and decides to pick up um, some bids from his old life and kind of pick up the fight, let's say, against um, the Axis powers in World War II. And at the same time, Claude Rains, who's like the French sort of captain that runs Casablanca, who's basically just like kind of been a little bitch, frankly, the entire movie, um, and just let the Nazis sort of walk all over him, decides he's going to help Rick escape and join him um, in the fight. And then Rick, uh, Humphrey Bogart, turns to him and says, you know, I think this is the beginning of, of a beautiful friendship, like one of the most famous lines in film. So it's, uh, and there's a lot more stuff that this film does that makes it truly, truly a great film. But the ending is is absolutely iconic. And uh, yeah, rewatched it last night, had to be on my list. I mean, absolute classic. I purposely zoned out a little bit while you were saying that because this has been on my list of big movies I've never seen. Wow. Wow. It'll be on there eventually. But uh, yeah, I've never seen it somehow. And it's at the top of the list. So I've heard it as an epic ending and it's going to happen. It, it's so watchable. You'll you'll really like it. It's so, so watchable. It's it's really well done film. And for anybody that wants to go deep, the director, Michael Curtiz, um, just this year, um, a great book came out about him called Michael Curtiz, A Life in Film. So that's that's great. And you should check that out. Ooh, very nice. Epic, I mean, epic pick. It's one of the most popular movies of all time. So yes, it is. There we go. And we got 1940s on the list there. All right. I am going to take us to 2001. One of my favorite films, which I find to be quite underrated as well, and one of my favorite endings of all time, and that would be Vanilla Sky, written and directed, of course, by Cameron Crowe, starring Tom Cruise, Penelope Cruz, Kurt Russell, Cameron Diaz, Jason Lee. The The plot is a, a bit confusing because a lot goes on, but the cliff notes are that Tom Cruise is like rich playboy in, uh, in New York. And he ends up meeting Penelope Cruz's character, Sophia, and they fall in love. But he had been sleeping with Cameron Diaz's character, who is very jealous and a bit unhinged mentally. And she ends up offering David, David, you know, uh, Tom Cruise's character, offering David a ride and she ends up crashing the car, kills herself and his face is like drastically uh, fucked up and disfigured. So he gets very depressed. He starts wearing like this prosthetic mask around and 
his life spiraling out of control. Many things happen over the course of the next hour, hour and a half. I will let you guys watch the movie, but let me just say that it all ends up with David realizing that everything he's been experiencing since that night has been a lucid dream. There's been this technology where uh, you can cryogenically freeze your body and be put into this lucid dream state where you believe it's real and you live this wonderful life even though it's not reality. I mean, it's your reality at that point. And it's it's this very interesting sort of revelation of what's been going on. And it turns out he had tried to kill himself after the accident. And uh, you, they're on a rooftop high above the clouds at the end. He's being explained all of this by tech support, which is a person in this case. So he has a choice to be put back in the dream. He'll never remember that he knows all this or he's going to be woken up in reality, but it's going to be 150 years in the future. Everyone he's ever known in his in his life will obviously be dead at that point, and he will wake up at the age he was when he got frozen, but uh, there won't be anyone else, but he can live his real life. And the only way to get out of the sleep is he would have to leap off the building to his fake death but uh it feels very real to him and so he decides at the end of it all he decides to that he wants to wake up and live his real life and so he has to say goodbye to you know his to Sophia who's in the dream and his buddy Brian who's there and he jumps and sort of has flashes of his whole life and then right at the last moment it like goes dark and then you hear open your eyes which is like a thing from earlier in the movie and he opens his eyes and the movie ends it's just there's no movie i don't think ever i really don't think there is another movie that makes me think about life more than this movie the first time i saw it i think i went into like this existential hole for like three or four days and i personally love when movies do something like that to me just because i mean to be able to have that type of effect on my my mind, I think, is something special. And at the very end, of course, the hypothetical of like, what would it be like to live when everyone else you've ever known or loved is gone? And I think that's a really interesting concept to have to try to grasp. So I just think this movie really takes some risks for being a pretty decently sized budget movie with you know one of the biggest movie stars in the world and i fucking love it i've watched it so many times i think it's an incredible film and i highly recommend you see it if you have not yeah i to be honest it's it's been too long i think i'll have to go back and watch it because i know you really love it and i you know i i saw it growing up and Mm -hmm. obviously that was quite quite some time ago you said 2001 right so 20 years old yeah 20 years old um, this year. That's crazy. Also, Lord of the Rings is 20 years old this month. I mean, uh, this year, which God, is crazy. That is about. so crazy. And Elijah Wood still looks like he's 25. What's going on there? Anyway, we'll have to watch Vanilla Sky again. You talk so highly of it. It definitely deserves a rewatch from me. Yes. And my number two deserves a rewatch from everyone. Whether you liked the film or hated the film, 
which apparently some people did. I didn't realize it was quite so controversial until uh, looking it up today. Very recent film from 2017, and that is Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread. Ah, uh, I haven't. Is maybe his only movie I haven't seen yet. I well, obviously, I would recommend you see it. Not like you were not going to see it anyway, because PT is a fucking genius. Oh yeah, I'll definitely but, um, see it. And I feel bad because kind of the star, Vicky Kreps, Creeps, is, is in that movie Old that we didn't really like. And she's much, much better in this. Yeah. So this is it's a very subtle movie um, in a lot of ways. But it's essentially Daniel Day-Lewis is um, he's like a dressmaker um, in London. And he's very famous, like for high fashion. Um, and eventually um, he starts a relationship. And things kind of go from there. Um, and by the end of the movie, and, he, and he's very like old and crotchety and kind of stuck in his ways. And that's a big reason why he's, he's sort of alone and, and not exactly um, happy. And by the end of the movie, she has poisoned him uh, with like some mushrooms, which caused him to be sick for a long time. But then when he was sick... And he was able to be sort of vulnerable or he was forced to be vulnerable and she was taking care of him. Their relationship really kind of progressed um, in a good way. And when he comes out of that sickness, he uh, decides that he wants to marry her and he seems kind of happy. And then, you know, some stuff has happened with his business and his business is not on top anymore. And he immediately kind of switches and says, I need, you know, I want to get a divorce and it's all this woman's fault and, and that kind of thing. So end of the movie she wants to get this their relationship sort of back on track so she makes a plot to poison him again with mushrooms and she serves him an omelet with the mushrooms in it and he takes a bite and before he swallows she basically says this is what's happened that she's poisoned the omelet so naturally you would assume he's going to spit out the omelet because he's being told that he's being poisoned Instead, he voluntarily eats the omelet, poisoning himself, and thereby setting up um, sort of the dynamic of their relationship is going to progress forward as it had uh, when he was like incredibly sick from being poisoned the first time. And it's it's a really sh- kind of a strange ending to a, a difficult film to land, I would say. And it, and it basically, you know, it's saying a lot about men and women, about relationships, uh, about marriage. And essentially he, you know, has sort of accepted that he needs to do this to be vulnerable, to be in a relationship, to be happy, and that he has sort of found his his equal or, or better even in this case um, and kind of has to allow that to happen. And she knows that that's the only way to get him to be vulnerable enough to do this. And it really sort of makes you, I don't know, it's it's oddly hopeful, but at the same time you're like, this obviously isn't a helpful or, or a, a healthy sort of relationship dynamic. So you're not sure if you should root for it or if you shouldn't. And it's, I mean, their whole relationship is kind of like that and they're two complex characters and it just has this kind of dark, kind of hopeful, let you interpret it uh, ending that, that really, um, no matter how many times I watch it, I've probably seen it three or four times now. It always sort of catches me off guard, even though I know what's happening because it's such a strange beat uh, to happen in a film. Wow. That sounds very intense and so, and very crazy. It's it's a really, really interesting and kind of crazy film. 
I, and I think you dig it. I, I really, I don't know why people reacted so, um, so, or I don't want to say like they did, like because it was on a lot of top top ten lists over the course of the year. But some people reacted really negatively, um, and I don't really get that. I think it's a great, great film. Yeah, no, I've I've definitely have been wanting to see this, and and heard actually a couple other good things from people I actually know, opposed to. I don't know if the, you know, a couple of critics maybe didn't like it, but yeah, definitely looking forward to seeing this one. What's your, uh, what's your number two? All right. My number two is definitely a very famous one. It is 1994's The Shawshank Redemption. Oh yeah. I mean, this one's just undeniable. It's the movie that everyone's dad ever loves. Pretty much just that most humans love because it's, a tale that has the ultimate happy ending and it's, it's absolutely beautiful. I almost had to put it at number one because it's just so incredibly iconic, I believe. And it's, of course it's with, you know, directed by Frank Darabont and it stars Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins. So with these two characters, you have Andy who is Tim Robbins character and red who's Morgan Freeman's character. The, basis of the plot is that Andy is is wrongly convicted of uh, murder and sentenced to, uh, I believe, a, a life sentence or two in the prison. And Red is there as well. They form a friendship over the course of the film. And then Andy ends up escaping. And at the very end of the movie, Red finally gets parole after being in jail for, I, I believe it's something like 40 years. And, you know, during the movie when him and Andy would talk, they'd always talk about a lot of things. And, and Red would always say hope was a dangerous thing and whatever. And the final monologue by Morgan Freeman in this movie, while he gets out of jail and you see him and he gets on a bus, it's, it's unbelievable. I literally have to read it because it's so good. He says, get busy living or get busy dying. That's goddamn right. For the second time in my life, I am guilty of committing a crime. Parole violation. Of course, I doubt they'll toss up any roadblocks for that. Not for an old crook like me. I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. And throughout the movie, they had a talk pretty much about a place that if they ever got out, they'd go. And Red remembers, and he ends up going across the border. And the very last scene is him walking on the beach and Andy's in the distance working on a boat and he stands up and he sees Red walking and you see Red look at him and smile and then he smiles back and it just ends. I mean, it brings tears to my eyes talking about it right now. It's just such a beautiful tale and it ends with these these friends reunited after going through so much and the man who thought hope was the most dangerous thing now believes in it due to his friendship with Andy. Yeah, another classic one. Great pick. Uh, without saying what happens during the film, you know, it just doesn't seem like they're ever going to get there because of what's happening, how long it's been, the things that they're saying. 
um, and the ability for for Red to get there and have Andy already be there after everything they've endured um, together. It's just just a great fucking moment. It really is. It really is. Well, terrible segue. I've got nothing good <laughs> because my number one is is not a great moment. It is a very sad ending. The opposite of hopeful. Ooh. But I, I love the film um, and the ending. Well, it will stick with you. It will haunt you. That's for sure. And that is 1950s Sunset Boulevard. There's Mike. <laughs> but another very famous film. Lots of noms. Uh, won for best screenplay, I think. Didn't win best picture. Probably should have. But anyway. So the film itself is is very like rough referential, obviously, just starting from the name. Um, but it's a lot about the movie biz, and it's about an actress that was big in silent movies that's, that's well, she feels that the talkies are sort of below her, um, but she's also delusional. She just can't be a star anymore because she's past, sort of past her prime, so to speak, especially with what Hollywood was giving you kind of back in the day. And she writes a screenplay, and she hires a young writer to sort of help her with the screenplay, but she has no chance of ever making it back to the movies. Um, and it's just, like I said, totally delusional. And before I say what the ending is, I think the things that I like about it are it. I really like when an ending is kind of leading to an inevitable conclusion. So this film probably should have been in my openings list. I somehow just wasn't thinking about it. So I'm glad I put it here because it starts with someone dead face down in a pool. Um, and you immediately are like drawn in. You have to figure out what's going on with this mystery. So you know that that's where the film is going to end. Um, but then it's setting up another inevitable conclusion, which is that you know this actress here, played by Gloria Swanson, is totally delusional. She's never going to make it back to the movies, and she's the only one um, that doesn't see it, unfortunately. So you know eventually that reality is going to hit her, and it's going to be terrible. And both of those things converge. There's kind of a falling out. It's made clear to her that she is you know, living in her own world and she's just never going to be famous again. Um, this movie that she thinks she's going to be making, she's not going to be making it all. No one's going to buy it from her. No one's going to make it. And she shoots the writer, played by William Holden. So he ends up dead in the pool. That's him. And she is kind of upstairs um, in denial about the whole thing. At this point, like fully sort of lost her mind. And the house is full of like press and they're full of, uh, you know, police because there's a murder there. And she essentially gets coaxed into coming downstairs out of her room by the thought that the cameras that are there taking her picture because she just murdered somebody are actually there shooting her film that she's not making at all. She like descends the stairs in this. It's really, it's giving me goosebumps talking about it now because it's really haunting because she's finally sort of happy um, that she's living this dream again, but but it's all a complete facade and to varying degrees, people are kind of playing it up. If only to just get her out of the house in a sort of stable way um, and just the dichotomy between what's happening and what she's experiencing and, and sort of the end of her career and sort of old Hollywood um, with the tragedy of the whole situation, it's just this, it's really, it's just really sad. It's just a really sort of morose moment um, that's not hopeful 
at all and and is like truly just one of those feel bad endings that you you can't get out of your head but it's so well executed um and the movie is is so well written um that for me even though it doesn't make you feel good it it had to be number one yikes this is another one i need to see you will still love it despite me spoiling the ending because like i said it's very clear where it's going to end from you know much earlier in the film mm-hmm. yeah no no i'm i'm definitely gonna watch it still and it, it definitely sounds very morose and dark well what's your number one numero uno could only be one thing for me and you know what i'm cheating mike i'm fucking oh. cheating at the number okay. one spot because to me there's two endings that are the greatest of all time and they're from the same goddamn franchise. And that's The Dark Knight Rises and The Dark Knight. If you say so, I believe you. So I'll talk about The Dark Knight Rises first, because this one I feel like gets slightly less hype than The Dark Knight ending itself. And I actually, if I had to give the edge to one, I might give it to this one. This is the ending of the trilogy. We think Batman is dead. Everyone's moved on and all these things have happened. And there's this epic montage. During the montage, you find out Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, he hasn't been going by his real name the entire time. And his real name is Robin. And there's a package that was left for him. And then you see like you see Gordon, like Gary Oldman's character, sort of seeing the old bat sign and, and brandishing it. And then... And then, of course, Michael Caine, who plays Alfred, is over in Europe. It, it looks like, I believe, Paris. But one of the greatest, the all-time great theater reactions of all time. He goes and sits down at a cafe. And the music is really building at this point. And, uh, Joseph and Robin is following sort of the instructions from this package and you can see that it's leading him to the bat cave and so he's like getting into it he's like starting to get into it and it goes back to alfred sitting at the cafe and he like is just doing his thing and then he like looks up sort of and then his his eye all of a sudden his head just just sort of jolts back up and a smile forms on his face and he looks across and it's motherfucking Bruce Wayne, Christian Bale, sitting at the cafe with Anne Hathaway, who, play, who you know, plays Catwoman in it. And they're sitting there and he nods at Alfred. And it's like, clearly, he did it to make sure that, you know, his most trusted friend, Alfred, knew that he was still alive out there in the world, but that nobody could ever know. And Alfred just immediately nods his head back at him, gets up with a smile and walks away. And then it goes and shows Robin entering the Batcave for the first time. And the platform that he steps onto rises and engulfs the screen in blackness. And then just directed by Christopher Nolan. Holy fucking shit. One of my favorite theater moments is David Kramer when we saw it literally stand up in the theater and just go, holy fucking shit, that was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. And the whole theater just going nuts. It's incredible. The man knows how to do a fucking ending. And even better, or I should say just as great, the Dark Knight ending, which I know 
so many people love so, so fucking much, which is Batman decides that even though Aaron Eckhart, his character, Harvey Dent, who turns into Two-Face and he's like a big, you know, political figure in the town, when he dies at the end, Batman sort of knows to bring bring the city back together. He has to be hailed as a hero, to Harvey Dent does, so that it's something Gotham City can rally behind and come together over. And so he knows that he has to be the one that's the bad guy. And, you know, Jim Gordon, played by Gary Oldman, he, of course, doesn't want this to happen. But, but you know, Bruce Wayne, Batman, he he explains to him why it has to. So his son comes up to him at the end and he asks him, why is Batman on the run like he didn't do anything wrong? And there's this legendary monologue that plays as we see all of Gotham City's cops and whatever starting to chase Batman. And it's just chill-inducing, unbelievable. And it's, of course, the final lines of it are just incredible. And he's like, because he's the hero Gotham deserves, but not the one it needs right now. So we'll hunt him because he can take it because he's not a hero. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector, a dark knight as he fucking Batman rides on the motorcycle away on the streets. And then it just flashes to black and ends seriously. I don't know how fucking Nolan does it, but he has two of the greatest movie endings of all time in the dark Knight and the dark Knight rises. Well, uh, I definitely approve of the cheat. Uh, we, <laughs> you know, I don't necessarily approve of the films, but, but you still got to take them, give them a watch. That's right. That's right. It's going to happen. But anyway, that's it. So should we recap these lists? Yeah. I am uh, five Black Swan for Nashville, three Casablanca, two The Phantom Thread, and one Sunset Boulevard. Incredible. And I am five Furious Seven, four The Truman Show, three Vanilla Sky, two The Shawshank Redemption, and one The Dark Knight Rises slash The Dark Knight. Should we just throw out a couple honorables? Yeah, yeah, I'll go throw out a couple. Um, so I was tempted to do a triple cheat at number two with wow. Boogie Nights and There Will Be Blood because B.T. Anderson is just a goddamn legend, but both great endings. And I didn't do any horror movies, but I think Night of the Living Dead is probably the best. Blair Witch Project is definitely up there. And one that's kind of underrated is Cabin Fever. I've always loved the end of Cabin Fever. Ah, nice. And the other two that were really close to my list, at number six, I had The Florida Project. That ending is is really, really fucking good and really interesting um, from sort of a filmmaking standpoint. And what made it to my number seven, which was not on my list at all because I had completely forgot until it just happened to pop on TV last night as I was going to sleep. American Reunion. Dude, I am so happy you have that on there because the ending is legendary. I mean, it wraps up all the strings of the movie, but all the strings of four movies. Yes. From basically the end of the sort of reunion where they're all like getting together with their respective girls. Then we get Jess back. We get Nadia back. We get Stifler fucking Finch's mom. We get the one of the greatest scenes in film history with the MILF reunion. Yes. 
And then there's like a little code at the end that kind of wraps it up. But that moment really, I mean, that's, to, well, as you know, and maybe our listeners do or don't, I avoided seeing this film forever because uh, I just assumed it would be terrible because the task that they were setting for themselves was impossible. And then I watched it uh, last time I went to visit you in LA and it was fucking amazing. Oh. And and it deserves it deserves credit. It's wow, just still still killed me. Oh, it's just incredible. I fucked Finch's mom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so fucking good. What a fucking call out. I'd say on my end of the spectrum, first of all, I purposely didn't have any movies that were on my official openings list just because I didn't want to double down. But a few that were on my top five opening scenes that would actually be in contention for my best endings would be The Lion King, Inglorious Bastards, and Dumb and Dumber. I mean, all have incredible endings. Then I'd say the ones from my twist episode that I didn't include were Saw and Seven. And then some others that I really love. I love the ending of Point Break, Fire Con Dios. Love the ending of Inception. I mean, just such a reaction from the crowd. Another Nolan with, of course, the little spinner. And you have to sort of make up your own mind. And just I'll never forget the crowd just exploding when that just cut the black. Love the end of Sing Street, which is from 2016. You know, uh, John Carney film who also did uh, Once and Begin Again. But the ending of that mo- this movie is just so good. It's like really at its heart. It's like a little bit of a teenage love story. But I think at its heart, it's about like a story about two brothers and just this older brother who, you know, wants his younger brother to have a better future than than he does. And at the end, it's like the younger brother, the main character and his uh, the girl that he's been into, they end up leaving the little rock they're on and going to go in the boat over to London. And it's just like this very emotional and triumphant ending with the brothers saying bye to each other. And then the older brother just like jumping in joy as he sees his brother driving the boat over across the sound. And it's just, it's awesome. Such a good ending. And I'll just shout out a couple more. There's a lot of good ones, but I love toy story three ending. I've talked about that before in other episodes. Um, Silence of the Lambs has a great one. Yep. Last one, this is the end. When they just fucking go to heaven and the Backstreet Boys are there doing fucking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that's it for me. All right. I think that's it then. Well, this was a fun, fun week. Let us know what your favorite movie endings are. You can find us on Instagram at Top Fives and Deep Dives and on Twitter at Top Dives. And we can't wait to see you next week. Peace, guys. Top fives and deep dives with town of PTM. Top fives and deep dives with town of PTM. Top fives and deep dives with town of PTM. Top fives and deep dives with town of PTM. My favorite director would have to be Martin Scorsese, followed by Quentin Tarantino. So fucking good.